Okay, well, uh, today uh, we have another interview uh, of Estos, and this time not online. We have Hermana Asad with us here in Amsterdam at our office. Hermana, uh, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming, Hermana. You are, um, I'll give you a short introduction of yours. You are the representative of Roxton South Harrow on the London Borough Harrow Council. Yes. But you're also the first person of Afghan origin, and I guess also the first Afghan origin female then, uh, elected to public office in the UK. Yes. Yes, I am. That is quite a, a feat, I guess, from where, you know, um, women in Afghanistan or girls in Afghanistan, the hardships they are facing now. Um, can you, just before we, we get into Afghanistan and all the other issues in the region, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, when did you leave Afghanistan? How? Um, I know that two years ago you were on the, uh, you were evacuated from Afghanistan when when uh, when it fell to the Taliban, but um, you left Afghanistan somewhere in the 90s. Can you describe us what Afghanistan was then and how you left and what happened to you in the UK? Why you chose public office? What are the reasons? I mean, it's a long story, but um, my family left in the early 90s when I was about three going on four. Um, and the reason they left is because of the internal civil war that was happening uh, at that time. So the fall of the Najib government um, and the internal battles between the different Mujahideen groups. And my parents saw that there was no future um, for specifically me and my sister. Uh, in Afghanistan, but um, there's a whole long story in terms of what happened. My father was working for an NGO, um, the World Food Programme, and also Mexico International and American Aid Agency, um, and he was actually supporting IDPs, the internally displaced people in Afghanistan from the civil war from Kabul. We were, we were staying at that time in Jalalabad, um, which is in the east of Afghanistan, and my father was giving out contraceptive pills. Um, in the IDP camps to try and control the birth rate because it was very difficult to feed um, the amount of children that were, were in the IDP camp. Um, and obviously there was extremist elements at the time who didn't agree with, with this kind of thing. So my father disappeared. And my mother said that this situation is unsustainable for the future um, because there was always threats on our families' lives. And she decided that she would take the political asylum that was given by the UN um, and leave. Um, and so she left and came to the UK. And she had remembered that there was this place in London that she wanted to live in because she'd heard about it from friends in mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Um, and she'd remembered it by the Afghan name Harun. So when she turned up at London Heathrow, the immigration officers asked her where she wanted to live. And she said, I want a place, I want to live in a place called Harun. And they said, where is that? And she said, somewhere in London. And they said, oh, Harrow. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where my family ended up. That's where I grew up. That's where I went to school. And I ended up going to university just down the road in Oxford in Brunel University. I studied international relations. Um, and just before then, actually, I went to Afghanistan for the first time in 2007 after we had left. So I don't really remember much of the Afghanistan in the 90s. But what I do remember is small things running around the IDP cab, chasing after a dog. They're just really small, like small memories. Um, but in 2007 was when I went first time sort of as a teenager. Um, I went for my uncle's wedding, and I think that trip basically changed my perspective uh, on the trajectory um, and plan. Because originally I wanted to go and study medicine, um, like most, um, most Asian of, kids yeah. do. 
Um, and also that's what my parents are pushing me towards. But actually, I quickly realised that that's not where my passions lie. And actually, it was more about public service and more about giving back. Um, and so I thought, maybe once I graduate, I will come back to Afghanistan and work. But once I got my master's in complex security and development, and I decided to return to Afghanistan, um, my parents were completely against the idea, um, because at that time, there was a huge um, Taliban resurgence, and there was lots of conversations that there was a new peace process happening um, that President Karzai had started during that time. And so my family felt it was not the right time for me to, to return. And so I did what any most you know new adult teenager kind of does, lays around for six months, uh, refused to find a job. Um, and then my dad said, why, why don't you try and volunteer in your local community? And I said, well, who said to help in the UK? You know, it's a developed country. I'm sure there's no one suffering and struggling here. And he said, you'd be surprised. Um, so I ended up working for uh, this charity that was helping single mums. Um, and I, there was this one lady who came in, she was um, pregnant, she had two kids under five, she couldn't speak a word of the language, um, but she was Afghan. And I was trying to help her from not becoming homeless. And I think that situation infuriated me to a point where I was like, well, clearly there's a gap here in British politics and you, know, you need to be at the decision-making table to try and push policies forward. Um, and so that's how I got into the Labour Party, that's how I stood for office, and then in 2018 I became a councillor, and I guess by accident in a way, because that wasn't originally the plan, mm. um, but it happened that way, and, and I didn't realise at the time that there was no one else. Um, but yeah, so that's how I became the first. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, people have this perception, and especially in the West, but also in, in our region, that uh, women are, you know, first of all, they're not allowed to do much outside of the household, but especially public office, public life. So how was your family, uh, how did they view this? Were they supportive of it? Or? So, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to have a Facebook account. Um, mm. My parents were like completely against this idea of me having photos online and having a Facebook account because there's a lot of talk in the community. You know, once I posted a Facebook photo where my parents didn't know I had a Facebook account, and some, someone saw it online and then told someone else in the community who told my grandmother, who then ended up telling my mom. And my mom was like, why do you have this photo? Now everyone is talking about it. And I was like, it's just a normal photo. Um, so I came from like a very protective sort of family. Um, would you say conservative? I, I would say moderate. I wouldn't say conservative and I wouldn't say liberal to a point to, to, to other people. Um, my family is very moderate, like we're practicing Muslims, um, but we're also very moderate in terms of clothing and also um, freedoms for, for women. Um, so my family were quite very relaxed in, in that sense. Um, so when I started volunteering with the Labour Party, I think initially my parents didn't take it seriously. They thought that, oh, this is just a phase. She will go through it and then she will get over it. And my parents were actually trying to push me to become a teacher. But I thought that was the worst profession that you could possibly do. For me, anyways, I, I thought that I didn't want to be a teacher. And, you know, I completely respect the teaching profession, but I just didn't want to be a teacher. And I guess that's for them. They were thinking more of the Afghan term context and Afghanistan teachers are respected and all this. Doctor, kind of teacher, engineer. Lawyer, engineer. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I just didn't want to do any of those. I wanted to go out of that and do more of the NGO and public sector sort of stuff. And... 
when you look at that sector, you think of more rich middle class type communities rather than working class communities. You know, my family lived, in, we live in a, I grew up in a council estate in London in a very deprived working class community. So it's not like I work, grew up in like a middle class neighborhood or area, um, but a, an area that's much better than others. So I think my, my family were initially um, like, oh, she'll get over this. But when they saw that I was actually really serious, and I think they really took me seriously when I got elected, on the night that I actually got elected, they were like, okay, then she's really serious about this. Um, and then they saw how much effort and, and you know, uh, work that I do within the community. Um, and they're hugely supportive of, of the work that I do and encourage me actually to, to dream bigger and to aim higher. And you know, while you have, of course, you left Afghanistan when you were very young, three to four years old, and then you went back um, for a while. So you've, you've spent most of your lifetime in the UK, but still Afghanistan is, of course, a red threat within your life. You're still in your politics as well, are very much still concentrated on things happening in Afghanistan and to the Afghan community in the UK. So why... You know, Where does that come from? Yeah, because at some point of time you're a councillor and you need yeah. to just be focused on, 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 on things happening in the UK, but you still have that yeah. have that connection. I think that one, one part of it is that when I was at university, I was consistently going to Afghanistan every year, um, doing uh, sort of volunteering humanitarian aid work, um, fundraising, but also vol volunteering when I was out there. And I was built, building these networks and knowing and finding out more information and just awareness and education about what's going on on the ground. Um, and then when I did my master's, I was able to sort of, and also my undergraduate degree, to familiarize myself sort of in an, an academic way. So both my dissertations, both my undergrad and my master's dissertations were on Afghanistan. Um, so I wrote my undergrad um, thesis on the Durand line and my master's degree uh, thesis was on Pakistan's role in Afghanistan. So both times was very focused on the region and, and Afghanistan itself. Um, and so after that, um, in terms of continuing to go back, even though I was elected and I was working in the NGO sector, sitting on boards for British charities who were working in Afghanistan and helping them understand how to work within that context. So if it was from building um, schools in remote provinces or doing emergency winter aid or emergency packages for um, you know, widows and, and various other impacted communities in Afghanistan, um, that's where the connection originally came from, from more of a volunteering uh, aspect. And then it turned to more of a um, political nature in terms of um, when I got elected in 2018, um, the ambassador, the British ambassador, former British ambassador now uh, in Kabul, hosted a reception for me when I got elected because I was the first. And so I was able to meet uh, young women um, who were working within various sectors in Afghanistan in a more formalized political kind of nature and way uh, at the embassy um, to understand more of their work and what they're doing. Um, I also met with the, the, the peace marchers in, in Afghanistan and just various different groups over that period and, and that time. Um, I also got to sit down with, well, over the years, um, the former Taliban foreign minister, Mullah Mutawakil, um, which I got a lot of backlash for online um, because I feel and I think that it's important that if you go out there, that you need to engage all different types of groups to get sort of a fuller picture. 
Um, so, you know, from Amrullah Saleh to Mullah Matawakil to these peace activists to young women, this gives you a whole different type of uh, understanding of the country. And over time, that's helped keep my connections with people on the ground and to give me a, a better understanding in terms of what's going on. And when you talk about understanding, how do you bridge the gap uh, which is there, the lack of understanding there is in Afghanistan for the West and also the UK, and the lack of understanding there is in the UK for Afghanistan? How, 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 do, you, how do you bridge that? Well, it's really difficult to bridge it, but I think the thing that we need to do is to try and make people on both sides understand that there's a lot of similarities and common, common issues. Um, but there's also this different context in terms of what goes on in the UK and what goes on in Afghanistan uh, and how we bridge that. For, for Afghanistan, it's mainly focused on peace and stability um, within the country, but also on, the, on the, an understanding of how uh, the war impacts families in, in Afghanistan and how the West, especially the UK, influences those kinds of uh, policies and decisions. And in the UK, we need to understand how our voting in parliament and how our policies on foreign and international policies impact countries like Afghanistan. And the, that, the, the bridge, how you build the bridge, is through awareness, is through education, is through understanding your culture and the society better, and that is by informing yourself and not just making preconceived conceptions and on, on so what, what, how did you feel when you were in, was it Kabul? When yes. you, yeah. So how did you feel when you took one of those last civil evacuation flights, um, when you saw reasonable, stable Afghanistan for, you know, the two decades before that, fall to the Taliban? What, what was your feeling as an Afghan? And as, as a, a Brit, a, a Brit, a Brit uh, a counselor, mm. politician in Britain, because yeah. I think there is some introspection over there. At the same time, you are also an Afghan, so yeah. you do see your country falling. I think that it was really hard. It was emotionally really difficult. Um, you know, me and my me and my father had to go around the house and take down the Afghan flag, the tricolor Afghan flag, take down musical instruments, and all this stuff in case it put anybody in danger who was still in the house, and get rid of those things. Um, that was really difficult and watching the sheer panic and the and the the chaos in Kabul when the Taliban came in um during that time that was that was very hard I think I was in shock for most of it I didn't believe that this was happening um there was one moment actually when I had failed to get into the Baron Hotel which was the evacuation point for British citizens and I was told by security group that I, the security group that I was in to find somewhere inside to get inside because the Taliban had just approached the, the road to the airport and so we were just 20 minutes this way to the Baron um, and the, I went into this house this the first house on the, there was a road and I knocked on the first door on the house and they let me in they were very worried what is this, what is this person doing out on the street um, so they let me in and um, I remember there was this young girl from who'd just come home from school. She was in the typical Afghan school clothes, so this black dress, white scarf. And I said to her in Delhi, oh, um, the Taliban are back. Like, how do, how do you feel? And she said to me, that's a joke. You're joking. 
And I said to her, no, no, like really, they're, they're back. Like, how do you, like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Did you come, just come back from school? And she said, yeah, I think people are joking. This is such a joke. Like, everyone's just pretending. And she was about seven or eight. Um, and I said to her, okay, come with me. And we were at the window. And from the window, you could see the Taliban flag that had just gone up across the other side. So I pointed to the Taliban flag and I said to her, but look, there's a Taliban. She was someone's playing a bad joke. That's a real joke. And I didn't want to break this young girl's heart even more. So I just said to her, yeah, it must be a really bad joke. Um, and she said, okay, I'm going to bring some food now. And then she went and bought me food and we sat down together and had food. But that conversation, I think, summarizes everything that was going on at that moment in time where people just genuinely didn't believe that it was real because of the 20 years of progress. You know, it was like, on the Saturday, I was in a restaurant where I was sitting with a friend and we were just normally like sitting there and talking and then the, a, a table next to us was this group of young Afghan women who'd just come from the Ministry of Finance down the road and were having lunch on their, on their lunch break. And I was looking at them and I was thinking to myself, wow, like Afghanistan has progressed so much that a group of young women who work in a ministry can come and have lunch together and they're talking about you know the normal things that everyday life has to offer and by the next day everything was sort of turned over and the taliban were back have you ever spoken again to that young girl uh no but what i do know is that she uh ended up leaving with her family um six months after um and being taken to the u.s because of the proximity to the Baron Hotel and the families that they had helped during that time. So she was one of the lucky few. Lucky few, yeah. To, to come back to the Taliban and, and you were describing these women who were, who were, who were there on their lunch mm -hmm. break. You know, as far as I've you know, read, I'm not a religious scholar, but as far as I've read religion, there are of course a lot of things in religion. What is this obsession of the Taliban with women? Why is it so much concentrated on oppression of, of women. There, there's a lot of other things in Islam as well, mm -hmm. which are, you know, for, for the time, very progressive, very peaceful. But why is it always about the women? I don't know. You tell me. We need to ask the Taliban that. But I, I genuinely do think it's about control. Um, the thing that they can control is the women. Um, the thing that they can try and beat down on, kill, abuse, um, you know, that that is the more, the more vulnerable part of society, and and it has been Afghan women and girls who've been at the mostly at the forefront. But that's not to forget that Afghan men and boys are also, you know, under attack by the Taliban in Afghanistan at the moment as well. And I think that we need to remember that um, because women are indirectly also under attack through the pressure that the Taliban put on the male members of, of families. Um, but I do think it's about control. Um, the Taliban want to control that section of society. But I think that if we look at it from sort of a political perspective, you control women, you can control your next generation of, of fighters. Um, mm -hmm. So if you do not have educated women, you do not have an active 50% uh, female population in your country, you can control so much that goes on within the economy, within within social circles, and culturally too. Um, you don't have an educated woman in the home, that means that you can get their son to become one of your ideological um, 
the bearers of, of your ideology. And I genuinely think that that is what the Taliban perspective is on. If you have an uneducated female population in Afghanistan, there's more chance that the sons that come out of those homes, that are born into those homes, um, become supporters of the Taliban. Mm. And, you know, you, you, just, you just described the fact that you have done a thesis on the Duran line, and you have done a thesis on the, on the role of, of uh, Pakistan or the Pakistani military, as it, as it were, uh, in, in Afghanistan and the Taliban. Yes. Um, when you talk about these young boys mm. um, who join the Taliban or become these, you know, in the, in the 80s we used to call them Mujahideens and, and, and now um, terrorists, radicals, um, how much are these young boys to be blamed for it, who are often 14, 15, 16, and how much is the system or the mindset to be blamed for it? I think the first thing that needs to be blamed is war and conflict, um, because war and conflict brings poverty, and poverty then brings uh, situations where people are forced to either send their children to madrasas uh, because of the meals and the stability that it provides um, children, uh, and those madrasas then uh, institutionalize and brainwash uh, younger boys into thinking certain ways. Um, the Taliban mindset, the extremist ideology, and pushing that out. Um, so I think war and, and conflict and poverty is to blame for, for these kinds of situations. Um, because if you have 40 years of war, then you have not one generation, not two, but you have three generations who've been, or four generations who've been impacted by war, who then go into a cycle of poverty, who then rely on places like religious institutions, like the mosque and the the madrasa to try and provide something for, for their children. So I think that's the, the first thing. And the second is is that on these young boys themselves, I think that you know most people say that a good talib is a dead talib. That's the general consensus. But I've always uh, disagreed with that because most of these families, if you actually speak to them, many of them I have actually spoken to the wives of the Taliban and sat down with some of them who actually have been recruited into um, Taliban ideology, they don't understand what they're fighting for. Mm -hmm. They think that they're fighting for this religious concept of going to heaven and then being given however many virgins at the end of it or whatever else. Some of these individuals and some of these young people cannot even read and write. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Afghan languages. Um, they can't even read the Quran Sharif themselves. Um, they just mem memorize or are told what to believe by mullahs. And some of them, some of them, at extreme cases, don't even know how to do the ablution for prayer. Um, and so, so this is the type of ideology that we're dealing with, brainwashing, basically, to a point where you're just using a human being as cannon fodder. Who is using? The Taliban, extremist groups, um, as cannon fodder for their political objectives. Mm -hmm. So so I think the only people that we can blame, really, are the extremists who are doing this. You talked about the role of uh, the Pakistani military establishment. What about it? The Pakistani military establishment. I mean, what do you want me to say? There's so much to like say you, on this. Yeah, but you, you like you just blame the extremists, and then of mm -hmm. course the extremists are also like 
supported by somebody. Again, because extremists in itself don't have a political objective. A political objective is mainly done by states or political groups. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I don't know whether it's still the case, but I do know that in the 80s, during the, uh, or, you know, after the 80s Soviet Afghan War, a lot of people who used to, uh, you know, uh, Peshawar in Pakistan was the largest population from Afghanistan uh, refugees who came there. And many of them were actually, instead of, you know, being given asylum, mm -hmm. Uh, actually trained in madrasas there and then sent back to fight. So um, this role, when you talk about 40 years of war, this role goes back to the era that uh, many of these Mujahideens were fighting <coughs> the West, uh, the war of the West against against um, against the Soviet Union. So this role is very, very old. There have been books written about mm. it. Um, so, you know, and you have been very critical about about that role. Um, so how do you how much culpability uh, is there? You know, everyone has been culpable in this conflict. Yeah. I agree. The Afghans have been, the West has been. So how would you how would you rate these culpabilities? So I think obviously when we look at if we're looking at oh, who to blame, mm. um, well, the Soviet Union's the first, Russia, because they invaded and they created this instability in the first place. Um, but then after that, it comes the West, the Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran. Um, and in this moment in time, it would be those regional countries surrounding Afghanistan. And one of them is mainly Pakistan, because most, most of the Afghans who left went into Pakistan, hosts one of the largest Afghan refugee populations in the world. And I think that what Pakistan has successfully done for its national national objectives and national interests is use Afghan refugees not only to get money and funding from the United Nations and from other Western countries, but also use it in its strategic objective with the strategic depth uh, policy within Afghanistan. Um, but I think that that's now has sort of a backlash on itself because if we currently see what's going on in Pakistan, the instability, I think it's had a reverse effect than what Pakistani's, well, Pakistani government or the military had hoped that it would have. Um, I honestly do not understand this paranoia and this difficulty that Pakistan has had with Afghanistan. But from everyone that I've spoken to, uh, all the academics, all the researchers on the Pakistani side, it comes back to Afghanistan vetoing Pakistan's uh, entrance into the United Nations um, and it being recognized as a formal state. And that links back to the Duran line uh, and that uh, disputed uh, border. Um, for me, the Pakistani mil military's culpability in this conflict is at the top because what it's done is it's supported the Taliban to do what it's doing now in Afghanistan. There would be no Taliban return without the Pakistani ISI support. So I think they are number one culprit in this. Conflict. Is that why the previous ISI chief was having this uh, celebratory coffee or tea in uh, in Kabul when it just fell? Yeah, I think you didn't see any other intelligence chief remaining in Kabul and having a cup of tea at, in the Serena Hotel. It was the Pakistani ISI. ISI chief who was doing that. 
um, every time you see someone talk about Afghanistan on international global stage, it is the Pakistani foreign minister or um, Pakistani politicians um, or Pakistani ministers speaking on behalf of Afghans and Afghanistan. Um, and I think that's pr probably the most infuriating thing for Afghans um, because um, they support something in another country that they wouldn't support for themselves. And I think that's hypocritical on a, on a hugely personal, social and political level um, that we probably don't have time to unpack. Um, but I think that, that what the ISI has achieved, um, they think that they probably achieved the strategic depth that they've always wanted to. And strategic depth means having a, a weak Kabul administration or pro-Pakistani Kabul administration in order to have a secure border on this side so that if there was a war with India, they'd be able to, to fight India. But I think that Pakistan needs to come to the realization that actually India's kind of moved on, you know, <laughs> India's kind of doing some other stuff uh, entirely globally um, in the region. Um, it's kind of moved on from this India-Pakistan conflict, in my perspective, um, from what I'm, what I, from what I've seen, um, and that it really needs to focus on it on itself. Um, but I think this influence on the Taliban and promoting the Taliban in Afghanistan has backfired. But there is a perception currently that things are not so, so cozy between the Taliban and the Pakistanis. So you might blame them for whatever happened in the past and for putting the Taliban into power of today. But many Pakistanis themselves and even Western observers are saying that things are not that uh, hunky-dory anymore between the ISI and the Taliban. Is that? But they've been saying this for a long, long time, you know, before they, the ISI and the Pakistanis were saying that we can't bring the Taliban to the negotiating table. Um, we can't get them to agree peace. But then we saw 2020, uh, the Doha agreement happen and the US acknowledged Pakistan's role in that, in that agreement. So we, we know that these things are possible. We know that they can happen. And I think that this is a wholly PR exercise. And the reason why it's there is because Pakistan wants to wait and re uh, remove itself in terms of being identified as being close to the Taliban in any shape or form on the, in, in globally um, and keep that sort of undercover um, because of their own political objectives um, globally and, and regionally. And maybe because they were globally under a lot of scrutiny in the past few years by the IMF and by the FATF. Yeah, I mean, economically, they're under huge pressure. But I also think about uh, what Imran Khan did in terms of visiting Putin and having that visit to Russia. Um, I think that didn't also help. Um, but I also think that because of what the Taliban are doing currently to women and girls in the country, and also killing and disappearing anybody who politically disagrees with the Taliban, most of those tactics are directly from the ISI. If you look and compare what the ISI is doing in Afghanistan now to what the ISI does, does in Balochistan, to what the ISI does in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, it's so very similar. Uh, very similar tactics in terms of imprisoning political activists like Matiu Lawisa, who is currently in Taliban prison, has been in Taliban prison for two months, an educational activist. Pakistan does the same thing to their activists uh, uh, in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and in Balochistan. And when you see former Afghan government officials who worked in the Afghan and defense and security forces being shot and killed 
um, you know, these types of tactics are what the Taliban has been pick, picked up or been taught by their supporters mm -hmm. uh, next door. You just talked about Pakistan and its strategic depth, and of course, its enmity it has with uh, with India. He also says India has moved on. I would maybe say that India, you know, India's the, the bigger enmity in the region is India and China. China yeah. And actually, is India and Pakistan, at least for now. Many people don't know that India's nuclear program was actually in response to China's China. nuclear program, and yeah. you know, did. Yeah. So, but. Um, uh, and there is a, another big giant there, which we just talked about, and that's China. Mm. Um, recently, in the past, you know, few decades, um, China has been coming closer to Pakistan, um, and not known for its own very, mm. you know, democratic credentials, uh, if you may say so. So, how much of influence does China have? in Pakistan and then subsequently, of course, in, uh, in Afghanistan. So I think that obviously the Pakistan and China relationship impacts how India responds to, to, to a lot uh, of what's happening in the region. But we also must not forget that what China does in Afghanistan in terms of minerals, mines, um, contracts with the Taliban they've recently brought up, um, that's, that's part of their economic strategy. So I think China's more get in there economically to then influence um, the policies of, of that country, which they've also done in Pakistan, if you see um, the economic, yes, in Sri Lanka, in some parts of the African continent that China's um, been in. So I think that China's role is the economic influence, which is also probably why Pakistan is currently struggling mm -hmm. with the IMF um, and various other issues. But, but I think that in terms of um, the the Taliban um, uh, the Taliban relationship with with Afghanistan Pakistan and, and China um, I think China's influence doesn't really care about the politics in terms mm. of human rights violations no democracy who kept their internal uh, interests and that is very much economic dominance but it also has to do with something uh, you know in that region you of course have a huge Uyghur population yes which China is not very happy with. No. And of course, the Taliban claims to be uh, protectors of, of, of Muslims. Uh, not, to, not. <laughs> yeah. not to have the Taliban suddenly look towards the Uyghurs as well. Because let's be honest, the Taliban and Mujahideen in Afghanistan have many times spoken about the Muslims in Palestine, the Muslims in Kashmir, uh, the Muslims in India, the Muslims in various places. But I don't hear them much about so do you think that political aspect could have to do with it? Yes, I think, um, so there were some reports that actually the Taliban had done some kind of deals with, with the Chinese. The oil mineral, the oil deal. Yeah, but in terms of actually returning Uyghur uh, refugees who mm -hmm. had actually come into Afghanistan back to China okay. based on some of the, the, the mineral, the, the mine contracts um, that the, the Chinese had signed with, with the Taliban. Um, but in terms of uh, what Pakistan... Uh, influences on, I guess, I think the Kashmir, speaking on Palestine, speaking on in, the Muslims in India, that is a very much Pakistani influence. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I say that is because of the social influence, not because of, of anything else. If you look at the Taliban, uh, you know, ministers and those in the government at the moment, the majority of them lived their entire lives in Pakistan, right? So they've been educated, gone to school, 
there, have homes there, their, their children go to school there still. Um, that naturally, generally impacts a person. So if you grew up in a country, you know, I'm British, there are a lot of things um, that impact me, you know, um, that are very British that someone else would not understand. And so naturally, an Afghan growing up in Pakistan would pick up some of those mannerisms, those those um, those cultural contexts. Um, so that's where I think that that culturally and socially that the influence comes from from there. Um, but I don't see the Taliban speaking on the, the Uyghur situation because they have interests with getting the Chinese to sign investment contracts in, in Afghanistan economically because no other country currently wants to invest in a in a regime that's you know putting measures across that are impacting fifty percent of its population. The main last question of this of this terrorist conundrum in the role of Pakistan, of course, is one of the things which is uh, not mentioned very often anymore. Uh, I personally also feel that Afghanistan has been off the radar for quite some time because of Ukraine and and Russia, probably. But um, you know, one of the most elusive things in Afghanistan with terrorist groups in the region, um, which has a huge influence, is of course the Haqqani network. So. How much of a role, look, you know, you just said the ISI controls the Taliban, but then the ISI also controls the Haqqani network, and then the Haqqani network is part of the government of, of, of the Taliban. So, how do you explain this? How do I explain <laughs> that the, the, the ISI has influence over the, the Haqqani network? Well, they got their training and their support and their funding from within the why is it, is it to undermine the Taliban, or is it to... I think that the Pakistanis or the ISI, let's say, understand that sometimes you will fall out with individuals and you need to have another group. Mm -hmm. um, and they've also, if you read some of the books that the former Pakistani ISI generals have written, they say the more hardcore extremists are the better fighters. Um, you know, that's why they funded Hikmatiyar so much during the, the Mujahideen fighting against the Soviet Union. Um, so I think that it's natural for them to go towards more religious extremist elements or terrorist elements within um, the Taliban. But the Haqqani network are recognized as a terrorist organization. Um, and I think that this is a huge gap and gray area where the West is not um, really talking about uh, and really trying to understand why is it that um, Pakistan, you know, a, a country that negotiates and gets Western funding, um, continues to support a UN-recognized terrorist group. Um, you know, it's a huge, huge uh, black hole and issue that, that people just don't want to touch and don't want to talk about. Um, but I think that for them, it's their strategic aims to have splinter groups within the Taliban so that if one group get, gets out of line, they can bring in another one or they can use the more religious extremist element to further um, their aims. But I also think something that we haven't talked about is the religious extremist elements within the ISI um, who all have sympathetic uh, ideological uh, thinking in line with the Taliban, in line with the Haqqani network. And that in itself is a threat to the democratic structure that we see in Pakistan at the moment. I think a lot of people don't talk about this, but I think that naturally there is. Uh, and that's because of decades of support and engagement with the Taliban. Um, so you, bet you, you think there's a part of it which does it for strategic depth, but a big chunk of it is actually ideologically aligned? I think there is a, 
an ideologically aligned element within the ISI who is sympathetic to um, the jihadi extremist um, ideology. Yes. Within Afghanistan. Within, also with, within their own country. Within their own country, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, there have been reports about this, but I didn't know that, you know, it's it's like so big that... No, I, I, I genuinely do believe that there is, um, because because of the... I do, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense otherwise. Um, but I also think that in the four decades of war that we've seen in Afghanistan, um, the, the change within the ISI itself and the more extreme support that it's given to organizations like the Haqqani Network, um, that there can only be uh, one reason for that. And if there's been a backlash in Pakistan at the moment from the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, you know, what other objective is there? Mm. Uh, you know, all this anti-West rhetoric that we see in Pakistan, yeah. the military can only allow something like that to, to happen. Mm. And eventually, well, some might disagree, but I believe that the military eventually will win this war as well. Well, yeah, we'll, we have to see. Ah, okay. We have to see, I guess, um, because we don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to understand what's currently going on in Pakistan um, because of the way Imran Khan is using the situation um, of his arrest and his, um, you know, the corruption charges against him and all this other stuff. But I think this isn't very uncommon in Pakistan mm -hmm. political history. We've seen this so many times before. So this is, again, another moment in history where we will see um, what happens, mm -hmm. I guess, um, and how that impacts uh, what happens in, in Afghanistan. But from the, from the current moment, what we see is that there is no change uh, in Afghanistan, and there will only be change um, when the West is really serious about engaging mm -hmm. uh, in that region. You also talked about the Durand line. Yeah. There are many Afghans, or <clears throat> I guess I've not met any Afghan who has basically said that we agree with this line. What is this line? Why why, why do the Afghans and the Pashtuns living on the other side? Why, why is this? Because, you know, we hear a lot about these, you know, borders. We hear a lot about the line of actual control, which is the, the de facto border between India and China. But there you also have skirmishes between both countries. You, of course, hear a lot about the LOC, the line of control between Indian-administered and uh, Pakistan-administered Jammu and Kashmir. These are very well, quite well known in the press and in public discourse. The Durand line isn't. It's not known. No, it's very true. The Durand line is not known that much because it's considered an internationally recognized border. And so nobody thinks that there is a border dispute within um, between Afghanistan and Pakistan on this. Um, so originally when uh, India was partitioned into two different countries in uh, Pakistan and India, um, half of what was Afghanistan was taken and half of what is now what was India is, was taken and a bit of the, the Kashmir region to make um, Pakistan as it is today. Um, prior to that, um, uh, the Afghan government wrote a letter to the British uh, East India Company um, requesting um, that the, the Durand uh, line, be renegotiated and the land returned to Afghanistan. So the land is up until the Indus. Um, um, well, Afghanistan claims it all the way up until the Indus, um, but uh, the line was drawn to where the Duran line is now, which is the internationally recognized border. Um, 
without going into too much of the history, but there were wars fought between Afghanistan and the British at the time uh, because Britain wanted control of Afghanistan as another colony or a colonial empire um, because of the influence of Russia. Um, and they ended up to this agreement. We won't go into the history of how this agreement came so about. The, the great game. Which the great game, there. yes. Um, but Mortimer Durand initially was basically the yeah. person who went um, to Amir Abdul Rahman and signed this Durand line agreement at the time. Um, and um, the Amir gave Waziristan, which, which is now known as Waziristan and, and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Balochistan in those areas, saying that they're unruly and difficult to deal with. So let the British deal with them for a while, but we will get them back one day. Um, many Afghans say that the, the agreement was only set for 100 years and that the 100 years expired in the 1990s and so they, that land should have been returned. Um, but the reason why it's not spoken about um, that much is because the UN recognizes it as an international border. Afghanistan put in a complaint to the UN at the time saying we've asked for this back um, but, but we didn't get a response from the British. The British initially basically said when they left the region not our problem anymore, go and talk to um, Pakistan about it. But there are some legal issues here in terms of who was actually the successor state. The successor state to the British uh, leaving is India, because that is the country that was left. But, but because it's split into two different countries, um, there is some difficulty on how, who you actually negotiate uh, about the line. And so that's when Afghanistan actually um, vetoed Pakistan's entrance into the United Nations based on this border dispute and saying that we have not negotiated this border and therefore we reject, Afghanistan rejects the entry of Pakistan into the United Nations. And this is also one of the reasons that Pakistan, Pakistan has, has had hostility, a big role yeah. in hostility in Afghanistan. Yeah. There's one thing about the Durand line and that I find, you know, in our region it's quite difficult to get people to agree on anything. Yeah. Um, but successive governments, whether it's uh, monarchies, yeah. whether it's democratically elected governments during uh, uh, the last two decades, or the Taliban, no Afghan government has ever recognized the Durand line. Yes. And I think that's because it has a sentimental issue. And the reason is, is because you've divided basically the Pashtun ethnic group. Um, the majority of people who were divided were Pashtuns on this end. Um, and um, those, you know, if you look at some of the villages, the, you have aunts and uncles living on one side of the village and aunts and uncles yeah. living on. So you're basically putting a line, a border between an entire village. Which in essence happened during partition. Partition and, you know, yeah. it's happened all over all the over. world. Um, but there it's basically split families. Yeah. Um, so you have aunts and uncles living on this side and aunts and uncles living on this or brothers and sisters or mums and dads or whatever it is. Um, and so that's the difficult part because you basically, the majority ethnic group, mm -hmm. many people say that's a controversial statement as well. Um, but if we look at this from the statistics that were previously, the Pashtuns are considered to be the majority majority ethnic group. And that is the ethnic group that's been divided by the line. Um, as well as obviously the Baloch at the bottom, because people don't realize actually you have quite a bit of a Baloch population in Helmand mm -hmm. um, and also in Kandahar um, and in those areas. And the Kurdis and the nomads, um, their life became very difficult because of this line, because they actually used to go between these places um, and take their, their, their animals mm -hmm. to graze uh, in these places. At that time, they were given calves, um, sort of to, to be able to roam freely. 
And then afterwards it became a fence, um, and the fence kept moving inwards towards Afghanistan um, because of excessive wars and, and difficulties. So that is the primary reason why no Afghan government has recognized it. Um, but also, I think strategically and politically, it, it makes Afghanistan a landlocked country. Without that, that land, that piece of land, Afghanistan could have had access to the sea uh, and had a seaport uh, and access to different types of, of trading uh, opportunities and economic opportunities, which it's now denied because, it, because of that, uh, the Duran line. You uh, brought up this issue of Pashtuns, um, you know, and you said it might be a controversial statement to say that they are the majority group. I remember you being um, at um, an event we organized last year in the EU Parliament on Afghanistan. Yes. And um, I also remember that you, for you know, whatever I can say as a non-Afghan, uh, that you represented the case of Afghanistan in its entirety. Yeah. Um, to the best uh, of your ability and what was needed as a platform as such. Um, but what we also saw that there are many divisions between Afghans as well, mm. on terms of ethnicity. Um, you know, how do you respond to that? How do you how do you feel about the fact that Afghanistan is under rule of Taliban? Uh, there are countries, big states playing their strategic games in Afghanistan, and then the Afghans at this moment, instead of uniting for one cause or yeah. to get rid uh, of, of, of these people, they have these very, you know, big, but um, these divisions within themselves. How do you respond to that, not as a Pashtun, but as an Afghan? As an Afghan who is made of different uh, ethnic groups, uh, I think that it's a uh, Obviously very, very sad to see Afghans infighting, um, but I don't think that it's surprising. Um, and I, the reason why I say it's not surprising is because um, if you look at the 1990s, the civil war that, that occurred in Afghanistan, it's one of the most horrific uh, wars. Um, you know, other people will have different views and they'll say that that's not the most horrific war and that there have been other horrific wars in Afghanistan. Um, but I think that in, in its most recent modern history, that's probably the most horrific war in terms of the different ethnic groups fighting one another. Um, and that type of hatred coming out in really physical violence and um, dehumanizing manner that it came out in, um, those wounds were not healed um, because then you immediately have the Taliban takeover and then you had an interim government and then a democratic republic. But those wounds were never healed. That discussion was never had over what actually occurred in the 90s, um, who was actually traumatized in, in that fighting and the difficulties that people went through. Um, you know, that Kabul was basically split between ethnic neighborhoods um, and people couldn't travel between the different um, neighborhoods because they were of a certain ethnic group. So I think those discussions weren't actually had and the, the wounds weren't actually healed. Uh, and then immediately you went into a democratic um, setup that many Afghans say was forced upon them in a way that they hadn't wanted, um, because initially Afghans in the Bonn conference had wanted uh, the monarch to return. The monarch was rejected by the United States. And then the Afghans chose another leader who was not Hamid Karzai, and uh, that was rejected. And so Hamid Karzai was chosen as um, the, the interim interim leader uh, of the country and then won the 
the elections uh, in 2004 or three it was. Um, so I think that that's not surprising in terms of the, the historical context. Um, in terms of the 2021 Taliban takeover and return, um, because the majority of people who make up the Taliban are from the Pashtun ethnic group. Many people blame Pashtuns for what occurred um, because well, the, the Pashtuns Taliban are also most of the victims. victims. Yeah, so so I think that what people fail to understand or realize is that actually Pashtuns are have been at the forefront for a lot of the violence in Afghanistan over the last twenty years uh, during the Islamic Republic, and we have to we have to accept this as a fact that there was. Um, the divides between the Afghan government um, in terms of how the different ministries were set, was recruited and set up in terms of ethnicity versus who were they actually fighting in the villages and the provinces in Afghanistan. From the outside, if you looked in, it looked like the Pashtuns were, on, were being killed and slaughtered in, in the south and the provinces, and it was the Afghan National Army that was made up of mostly other ethnic groups. But realistically, that obviously was not the case. There were obviously Pashtuns in, within the Afghan National Defense Security Forces. And the Archik Zais tribe, for example, in Kandahar, who were on the forefront of fighting against the Taliban in, in the south. Um, so I think there's, a, there's a, not an understanding of the suffering that's occurred within Pashtun communities, which is why a lot of people blame um, Pashtuns, because the Taliban is made up of, of mm -hmm. them. Um, but it's difficult because... Um, you know, what is preconceived from the outside and how it looks is not always how it is on, mm -hmm. on the ground. Um, I, I think that the, one of the ways that we can get past this is to uh, build a consensus and understanding that it wasn't just one community that suffered, it was all communities that struggled and suffered in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, that there were neighborhoods in, in, in Kabul uh, that were obviously targeted because of ethnicity. Um, but the same thing also occurred in the South um, and in other areas. And so having an understanding of, of that um, and saying that it doesn't have to be either or, it can be both and both can be the same and doesn't need to be a competition, um, will try and get Afghans to come around to the idea. But, but I do think naturally, you know, um, you know, the majority ethnic group is naturally going to be blamed um, because uh, people preconceive their power, preconceive that they're, they're most powerful. But, but as, as is in any society, you can have um, a lot of people, but they're from different social economic classes. You have poor Pashtuns with no power, and at the same time you have uh, rich Pashtuns with, with lots of power. And you have the same in other ethnic groups, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Azaras. Um, and so I think people need to come to that kind of understanding. I, you know, I get a lot of abuse online. I get a lot of abuse when I go to panels. Um, but I, I am not phased by it that much um, because I know that my understanding is from my experience, my professional work, and the work that I do within the humanitarian sector. Um, and many of the, the criticisms that come are from people who either don't have that experience, uh, don't have that understanding, and have never actually been to Afghanistan or the region. Um, and so I can contextualize it in that. But also, but also um, I want to you know, understand that they're, they're coming from a place of pain mm -hmm. and trauma. 
So if you have not really uh, dealt with that yourself, you obviously lash out and you will express it in, in a different way. Um, but, you know, I think that this is where the West can come in and actually listen to the voices working, because it's easier to work for division than it is for unity. It's much more difficult to try and bring people together. It's very easy to, to split people apart. Um, and I think that Afghans need to focus on bringing people together, because whether you like it or not, the country is the form that it is right now, has the name that it is that it has right now, um, and you need to work together to try and get it to a place where everyone is, is, is happy uh, and living in a democratic, free uh, country, which cannot happen um, if the Taliban are in control of it, and the Taliban will stay in control if Afghans continue fighting amongst themselves. So. And if you go by the, by the, by the perception that you know, a majority of the, uh, the Taliban fighters are Pashtun, in contrast, uh, you also have another movement, which is the Pashtun Tahafuz movement, uh, which is non-violent. Mm. So, um, you know, what do you, like, I know the Pashtun Tahafuz movement is mostly an issue which deals within, you know, it's, it's, it's for rights within Pakistan and the constitution of Pakistan, but it is mainly Pashtuns. Where do you stand uh, on their, on their ideology on their demands? So I am a supporter of PTM and I am, um, uh, well, I can say this, I'm friends with Mansur Pashtin and he's a good friend of mine um, and I respect him hugely. He is a very brave and courageous individual for doing what he's doing in the face of you know, violence and threats uh, in Pakistan. I think it's not easy what he's doing and I think that it would be unfathomable like to think that he's doing something like this. I think if you look at Pakistan in 2012 or 2011, what Mansur has achieved now would is crazy and people think it would have been impossible um, during that time. To get people out on the streets chanting for their rights, their constitutional rights which they have a complete right to under not only national but international law, um, it, it's a huge thing and I, and I admire and respect him. Um, but I think that in terms of what my PTM is trying to achieve is, as I said, the removal of the Pashtuns towards this, this factory line of um, the madrasas and being um, institutionalized by extremist ideology to then be used for political purposes by the ISI, by the Haqqani network, by other groups within the Taliban. Um, and I think that's the key to breaking down this entire regional war and trying to stop what's going on uh, in both countries. Um, so I think that's what PTM is trying to achieve um, by trying to reduce poverty. Fighting for constitutional rights means reducing poverty, means reducing the factory line towards the madrasas and therefore reducing the factory line to the extremists. Um, and therefore towards peace um, uh, within their villages and the demilitarization of, of Waziristan uh, and stopping having Taliban camps, training camps within those places or the Taliban's influence uh, within Waziristan specifically, um, the opening of schools, having hospitals, just basic, basic things that they should have, which they don't. Um, would actually help this, the situation in, in both places, I think. So just like a hundred years ago, um, when the ideologies of Gandhi and Basha Khan uh, of non-violent movements were important, they are as important as, as they were then. Yeah, I think that, that this is hugely, hugely... I hope that he is successful in what he does. Um, I think it's hugely brave because 
I've seen protesters walk towards live round of bullets from, from the Pakistani army. That's not easy to do. No, like, it's not easy to do that. Um, and for them to have done that and to give the the sacrifices and the martyrs that they've given, um, I think it's all in the cause of um, a peaceful Afghanistan um, and a peaceful Waziristan, Khaibar Pakhtunkhwa and Balochistan, because those are the regions that are most impacted. Uh, Coming to the end of this interview, because before we started, you already told me that, you know, an hour is too long and I think we're already busy an hour, but there's so much to discuss. So I'm going to go to the last few questions I have. Okay. One is, and that's uh, particularly from my own experience, is that, um, again, going to the Soviet war in Afghanistan, you had a lot of, you know, radicals, Mujahideen, jihadis, coming into Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. Once the Soviets left, you had this civil war which erupted, and then you had the Taliban, which took the majority of the country they took. And, but you were left with a lot of battled, hardened mm. uh, terrorists, mm. which eventually at that time, you know, we experienced it in, in, in Kashmir, that uh, many of them came to, uh, came to Kashmir, we used to call them guests, um, to fight, uh, you know, uh, there. Mm. Um, um, and now, of course, you have Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, according to many observers, it's impossible for the Taliban to keep ruling this country. Um, at some point of time, many observers say that they will fall. What will happen to all these battle-hardened terrorists? Where will they go? As you said, they won't go to Xinjiang. So. You know, where do you see them going? What will happen? Will it ever become stable? Not only Afghanistan, but this region, India, Pakistan, will it ever become stable? So I, I, am, I am a, a person who supports a diplomatic solution to, to this, a sit-down political negotiation solution to whatever is currently going on, especially in, in Afghanistan. Most Afghans have still not come around to that idea. Um, because they see resistance in terms of armed resistance as the only way. But my question is, who is the armed resistance and that armed resistance being a national unified uh, force rather than a specific interest uh, group for, for, for a certain individual or person? Um, but I think in the future, yes, we will see the, the Taliban fall um, because they cannot govern a country where 50% of its population are not allowed to work not allowed to go to school, not allowed to go to the park freely, uh, can't even take a taxi on their own. And you have a huge amount of that population who are widows, who don't have male uh, members of their family to help provide orphans. food. Yeah, orphans. Uh, and there's a huge amount of poverty and, and difficulty. You've got sanctions on the country. You've got uh, UN-recognized terrorists within its, within its cabinet. You know, these are huge, huge difficulties that the Taliban has. Uh, in governing Afghanistan, they were, went from an insurgency and an insurgent force attacking to now trying to govern. And I recently heard, um, a I think it was Mullah Brother, who said that um, it's not the Taliban's responsibility to to feed you. Um, God is responsible for that. So so stop complaining. Um, you know they're going to struggle because people are not going to put up with this kind of uh, governance uh, for long. So either the people with will resist and. Um, join forces with resistance groups, um, or the international community will have to come to 
some kind of diplomatic uh, endgame on it and a political sit down. Um, but I don't think that in terms of what we're currently seeing in the region, in terms of Pakistan's role with the Taliban and the status quo, I don't see either option at the moment becoming some sort of fruitful fruitful end because I don't see any armed resistance group really providing that resistance on a ground where the Taliban actually or the international community take it seriously. And on the other end, the Taliban refuse to sit down at the political table and have negotiations. Um, but but one thing that, that, that I will say is that um, Afghans are not, um, the Afghans intermarry, right? Um, Afghans are mixed. As much as we try and divide them into different ethnic groups, we are incredibly uh, mixed as a society and group of people. Um, and so I think that what we look at in the future is a sort of, once Afghans have got over the trauma of what's happened, and it's been two years now, um, but once the Afghans come to an, an agreement on how to negotiate with the Taliban, how to respond to the Taliban, then you will see a fierce uh, sort of uh, movement towards some, some sort of uh, future endgame. Um, because in the past, we've had the Rome group, which was the group that was trying to reinstall the former king of Afghanistan into after the fall of the Taliban. And we also had all these other resistance groups who were fighting within Afghanistan against the Taliban. So you had Ahmad Shah Masood in Punjab, who was actually in the country fighting the Taliban and had an entire province under his control um, in resistance. So there were different ways to try and leverage um, some sort of a conversation negotiation with the Taliban. Now, currently, there is no group that people can, all Afghans can rally around, um, or there's no sort of control province or armed resistance groups within the country and that can actually um, push the Taliban um, to, to come to terms with uh, some sort of uh, an agreement. So I think in the future what we will see is that these jihadi groups um, either link up to more international, internationally active uh, jihadi networks and launch some type of attack on the West. That will trigger a response from the West. Um, to Afghanistan, or we see the West actually becoming serious and, and engaging. Um, but I think what we've kind of missed in this conversation is um, the role of the Arab countries, the Arab majority countries, Saudi, the UAE, um, uh, Qatar, for example, uh, in pressurizing uh, the Taliban to, to move on a more diplomatic uh, way forward so that we can avoid war and, and destruction really um, because many of the things that the taliban you know tries to implement in afghanistan is basically the Wahhabi talk of saudi arabia while saudi arabia seems to have moved on yes um, saudi arabia is wanting to be the new europe right? or the new dubai the new dubai or the new europe that they said that in five years time saudi or they have cinemas and fashion shows yes i mean exactly so i think that the taliban need to well, one of the hopes that I have, if we're talking about actually on the foot ground soldiers, is that uh, I read a report recently where a Taliban soldier entered Kabul for the first time and was shocked. Was shocked at the buildings, was shocked at the development, did not even think that Kabul was like this. And you know there's this iconic photo of a Taliban fighter with a gun in a bookshop mm -hmm. and everyone's like, stop romanticizing the Taliban. But you know, actually that kind of stuff gives me hope because 
when you have awareness and you have education, you also have the opening of the mind. So you have these Taliban fighters who cannot read and write, but they're coming in and they're actually saying, oh, okay, so there's a woman in a hijab and she's walking normally in the street and like, you know, she's just doing a normal job or she just wants to provide her for her family. And okay, there's a building and, you know, there's not all, there's Muslims here and there's, you know, and there's Fazan in the mosque and, you know, they were, they've been taught and told these things that are not true. And so it's like breaking down the, um, you know, you, the, you, the, you, it's, it's so funny <laughs> because you remind me of this when, when, these, when, 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 um, fighters, jihadis from mm. Afghanistan, used to come to Kashmir, they were actually told before they came there that Muslims were not allowed to pray, that there was no azan in the mosque, that women were being, you know, kidnapped, sold, and then they came there, and then they saw that none of that was true. Uh, and many of them then quickly returned and said, well, this is not my battle to fight. Exactly. Uh, I think that's what I hope will come from this. That's what I hope the last two years has been for a lot of the, the fight, the foot soldiers, um, which is why many of them, you know, there are reports that they're getting bored. Mm -hmm. um, they don't know what to do with themselves. Or there are reports that certain fighters actually said, well, what was this for? Because I was told that there wasn't Muslims in Kabul and there are Muslims. And so I hope that that kind of awareness and education spreads. So we have more of an understanding on sort of the ground, rather than the leadership of the Taliban, but the actual ground for soldiers. Uh, I think that's where the change will come, because... Um, and where will that change be coming from? Will that be indeed, as you described, Kabul? Will it be Washington? Will it be Brussels? Or will it be Raul Pindi? I think that... <laughs> I don't think that we can create that change from a regional country, uh, outside influence. I think that will come naturally through access to information, social media, uh, and interaction with, with society in general. Um, but that can't happen if Afghanistan isn't allowed to flourish and the Taliban, can, the Taliban leadership continue to provide policies where they're dehumanizing and removing the rights of 50% of the population of Afghanistan, which is women and girls, uh, and imprisoning and killing their political rivals. Um, I think that what we'll see in the future is either an attack from one of these groups in the West where the rest will re-engage, or we will see uh, a natural um, grassroots movement within Afghanistan that will be supported by Afghans from outside um, that will challenge the Taliban, uh, either an armed resistance group um, that might gain some kind of control or uh, more diplomatic initiatives between people to people conversations. Okay, I'm going to ask you the last question. Okay. <laughs> and I want to, you know, you, you've talked about so many things, and I actually have a, a lot of other things lined up to ask you, but let's 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 leave it at that. But the last question I want to ask you is to give a message to a few people, and I'm going to ask you what, you know, you, what message do you give to your, you know, Afghan girls and women? You being an Afghan mm. woman who has been elected to public office in the UK, what message do you give to them? In Afghanistan, I would say that you're not forgotten and that there are people who are still fighting for your rights and trying to raise awareness of what's going on in the country. But I would say mainly don't lose hope um, because things change, you know, quickly. Um, they can turn around very, very fast. Um, and I think that there are people in Afghanistan at the moment who are doing a lot of good in terms of not only trying to deliver humanitarian aid, 
but also jobs and uh, trying to support women and girls there currently. Um, it might not be at the level that uh, it was before the Taliban, um, but I think that that's where I would say for them not to lose hope. Um, because there are good people doing some good stuff to try and change the situation. Um, and yeah, so I would say don't lose hope and don't, don't forget that there are people out here who still remember and try and help. Um, and to try and basically try and do something to, to, to keep yourself uh, happy because I have lots of friends and networks in Afghanistan at the moment who have told me that they feel hopeless and they feel like that there's no way out. And, you know, it's interesting because I just came here from Israel-Palestine and um, I was speaking to young Palestinians there who are living uh, in, you know, occupied Palestinian territories and they feel hopeless and they feel really difficult. So I guess my message to Afghans in Afghanistan would be you're not alone. You're not the only people in the world to feel alone or feel like there's, they're going through difficulties and that there are others like you, um, but they're also pe good people trying to help. So... Not to forget that, basically. And what will you, um, you know, in your role as a counselor mm -hmm. in the UK, uh, as much as you can, you will continue to highlight this issue, especially of the girls and the women over there? I mean, I still try and use my platform as much as I can to discuss Afghanistan, to rem remind politicians about Afghanistan. Uh, and to highlight what's going on, uh, to try and bring people together to find solutions on how we go forward. Um, but in my own capacity as a counsellor in Harrow, I've been helping many, many families who actually were evacuated from Afghanistan, who now have settled in the UK. Um, so that's part of my work as, as a local counsellor and as a representative in the UK. Um, so it's on all fronts really, we try and do the international stuff and also the domestic stuff. Um, but you know, I'm only one person and I can't do this alone, so we need to do it together. And so which is why I think Afghans need to stop infighting and fighting each other. Um, because I'm not the Taliban, so um, people should stop attacking me or other people who are trying to do good and actually work and join forces with them to try and defeat what we see as uh, an extremist group who are in control of the country now, who are implementing policies that are harmful to all of its uh, citizens, um, and that no Afghan really wants because no Afghan has chosen it. So, um, yeah. What would you say to the Pakistani military establishment? The world has moved on from these internal conflicts, and that I think it's time that they saw what's happening in their own country and to their own people. Um, and that you know the extremist influence that the Taliban is having on their society, and that it's not going to have a fruitful end for them. So I think that they should reverse what they're doing and stop what they're doing. Um, you know, because not only is it against human rights, but is it isn't the right thing to do, and it's not actually helping their country in any shape or form. So. Tamara, thank you very much, and you know. Um, Let's hope, you know, you, again, you've always been introduced as the first Afghan uh, origin elected um, to public office elected in the UK. Let's hope one day we can say you're the first Afghan origin Prime Minister of India. Why not? <laughs> Thank you so much. I don't know if that will ever come true, but we'll see. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for having me.